to build you back up to the excitement of the movie The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And in it, Quasimodo, the hunchback, is, um, sees the, someone who has been kind to him, who is kneeling on the steps of Notre Dame, being told to say her last prayers as she is being prepared for execution. And reaching out then for a rope from where the workmen have been repairing the cathedral, he goes down, 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 and he collects La Esmeralda, and he takes her over his shoulder, and he runs inside the church crying, Sanctuary! Sanctuary! And they knew then that she was safe. No one could harm her. It was a sacred law. She could not be executed while she was within the walls of the church. Now, Shechem was the word you were trying to say, Warren. It's the name of a city, and it's a strange one, so don't give them a hard time about it. But it, it looks funny, but, but Shechem was a city of refuge. Just a few chapters earlier in Joshua, you see Shechem named along with several others where people could go if they had accidentally killed someone then they could go within the bounds of this city and they would be safe. Later a trial would take place. But while they were there, they were safe. So is it not interesting then that Joshua would take all of the leaders of Israel to Shechem to meet them there and to take a new look at where they go from here? We skip the verses where he passes through the, the stages of their history of salvation. They were slaves in Egypt, and God led them out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. The Egyptians didn't. God led them through the wilderness, and then, in their perspective, led them into this land of Canaan, which they had invaded and conquered. This God had followed them and cared for them all along the way. And so now they gather to recognize God, to thank God, and to look again at who they are and where they're going from here. So we have to see Shechem as not just a geographical place, but a spiritual place. A city of refuge and safety. The Israelites are being asked to forswear their allegiance to foreign gods. And Joshua sees them as having three choices. There were the gods that Abraham and Sarah worshipped over in Mesopotamia years ago, their ancestors. There are the gods of the Amorites in the land of Canaan where they're going. And then there's this one singular, unique God above all gods that Joshua and his family are choosing to serve. Which God or gods will we choose to serve? Now, we don't think about gods of the Amorites or the gods of Mesopotamia. We think about gods as something that we put ahead of the God we know, as perhaps our own selfishness or as perhaps our um, our 
seeking after power or, or greed. Uh, the seven deadly sins come to mind here, came to mind for me. Greed, lust, envy, pride, gluttony, sloth, wrath. And we're all tempted to serve these false gods. Barry Vaughn writes, I thought this was insightful, the thing about gods, even false ones, is that they really do reward their worshipers. People who worship financial success often achieve financial success. A person whose single goal in life is to amass a large amount of money stands a reasonable chance of achieving it. In other words, if one offers enough of the right kind of sacrifices at the altar of financial success, then the God of financial success may, in fact, give you your heart's desire. Similarly, if you sacrifice at the altar of professional success and offer that God the right offerings, you may, in fact, achieve professional success. False gods sometimes give us what we want, but rarely give us what we need. Will you forsake other gods to serve the Lord? That's the question that Joshua asks these leaders. And so we translate that to us. Will we forsake other gods to serve the Lord? John Trent co-authored a book with Gary Smalley called The Hidden Value of a Man. And he tells this story about when he led a young life group and rounded up some kids to take to a summer camp. There was a young boy named Mark in that group that went to camp. The main speaker for, for the week was named Bob Mitchell. He was called Mitch by the campers. And he called most of the shots about their schedule, when things were going to take place, including when they would be eating their meals. And so Mitch was often talking to the cook about when he wanted the meals to be ready. Now, the cook loved her work, but it was exhausting, as you can imagine. She always looked tired. Whenever she talked to Mitch... Mitch got up and gave her his chair and a moment's rest while they discussed the meal plans. And nobody noticed Mitch doing this except Mark, this young boy. Mark hadn't come to hear about Jesus. But when he saw Jesus' love lived out in that simple act of kindness by that camp speaker, he began to listen to Mitch's talks. And later that week, Mark asked Jesus to be his Savior. And Mark said it wasn't because of the messages, but because of the love that he saw in Mitch. He said, Mark said, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I want to be one. That's the power of serving through Jesus. Giving up a chair to someone who's tired. Giving a cup of water to someone who's thirsty. Giving a listening ear 
to someone who's lonely. Barry Vaughn again notes that every day false gods attempt to seduce us with empty promises of wealth, power, and pleasure. And yet it's only the unique God of the universe who can truly, truly satisfy our deepest longings. So, Will you forsake other gods to serve the Lord? Many people have said yes. Billions of people have said yes. And even if we've chosen that before, we choose again every day. Every time a temptation comes our way, we choose again. Can you say then, as for me, I will serve the Lord? Will you forsake other gods to serve the Lord? What do you say? Let's pray. Holy God, you are a jealous God. And you call us to serve you alone. We pray then that we might be Noticing your spirit's movement in our lives so that we can be faithful in serving you. Guide us, we pray, in the name of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.